Welcome to Over Dinner Tonight. I'm your host, Alexa Buckley. I sit down and dine with some of the world's most interesting and inspiring voices. And we have the kind of conversations that can only happen over the ritual of dinner. Please grab a plate, and if you're eating along tonight, some very spicy tuna for dinner with Cheryl Strayed. Cheryl is many things. She is an author, an advice giver, a mother, a wife, and I can say, a spectacular dinner date. She is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Wild, which was made into an Oscar-nominated film. Her best-selling collection of Dear Sugar columns, Tiny Beautiful Things, was recently adapted for a Hulu television show, which we'll talk about over dinner tonight. She is the author of two additional critically acclaimed novels, Torch and the best-selling collection, Brave Enough. Her books have sold more than 5 million copies around the world and have been translated into 40 languages. I have been a longtime fan of Cheryl's, and I think after this dinner together, you will be too. We are here at the Angler restaurant in LA, and I'm going to walk inside now. I can tell that you're like the, the recording she's, person. She's the tech awesome. expert here. Awesome. Selena has to mic you up. Awesome. Okay, we're taking seats in the back at a quiet table. Cheryl's here visiting LA from her home in Portland to celebrate the release of Tiny Beautiful Things on Hulu. The TV series stars Katherine Hahn and is an adaptation of her incredibly popular and deeply personal Dear Sugar advice column. I cried almost immediately into the first episode, and I can say it's just as good as the book, which also sits on my nightstand. How's your day today? It was good. I was, I just came from Hello Sunshine, you know, Reese's company yes, offices, yeah. where I did a bunch That of is Reese Weatherspoon, the actor-director who starred in and directed the film adaptation of Wild, Cheryl's memoir of grief, love, and self-discovery along a thousand-mile hike. The movie was nominated for an Oscar. So the main event to be shared, it's all focused on live seafood with the live fire. Great. Okay. And you'd like anything to drink? I love a Chardonnay. Why don't I get a glass of the Chardonnay? Thank you. Perfect. All right. So, so we get to share. Is there anything calling your name? I went on their Instagram. Their food is, looks very beautiful. That. The swordfish Yum. with barbecue pineapple. They were these right. beautiful skewers. But I mean, I love Brussels sprouts. <laughs> okay, let's get Brussels sprouts. Oh yeah, fish? the Murray cod. Yeah, Anything is that enough calling? food for us? Should we try the Are we being recorded? <laughs> Wait, is this part of the podcast? <laughs> it's, when, it'll be added. When does the podcast start? Is it now? <laughs> it's now. But guess what? That's the best part. See, it's dinner. <laughs> I feel like you're spying on us. You're just sitting there listening to us. Do you, <laughs> you are. You're like totally. First sound maven. Anyway, thank you so much for coming to do this and sitting down with me over dinner tonight. Thank um, you. Do you have any rituals around dinner or like growing up in childhood? Did you have any? Oh my goodness. There's so many dinner, so many dinner memories. You know, it really is just as you say, to me, it is the meal that yes. you share with the people you live with, mm -hmm. you know, and that's been true all my life. Mm -hmm. Growing up, my family had dinner together 
And my mom wasn't like some kind of amazing cook, but she cooked and she made us, you know. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Yum. Here comes our wine. Awesome. Thank you so much. Cheers. Here we are. To us. Cheers to us. Cheers to us. This is so fun. Oh, we are ready. So we are thinking we're going to share as you suggested. Could we please have the tuna, the Caesar, the Brussels sprouts, the swordfish, and the cod? How do you feel about is that, that order? Is that too much food for two people? That's perfect. Oh, is no. it? You get every more. Oh, good. Oh, good. Maybe a plus. The cheesy bread, that's it's fresh baked bread. It's pretty awesome. But otherwise, you get every more. You like cheesy wrap? Just add it, just in case. I mean, just add it. Oh, perfect. Okay, so I was asked, um, you were answering, if you had any share, like any like rituals around dinner growing up or now? Well, dinner is the ritual. I mean, that's what's so beautiful about it is we don't have to do a certain set of things to, you know, Mm -hmm. feel welcomed and warmed by gathering at a table. And I've done that all my life. My mother, even, you know, I had all kinds of different sort of eras of my childhood, mm-hmm. times when my mother was a single mom for many years, even during that time, where you know, things were difficult and she was very busy working all these jobs. There, dinner was just the mainstay of our life. And what, the thought that just came to me is, so when my mother, my mother left my father, he had been abusive to her. She fled with me and my brother and sister. So she, here she was like, by the age of like 27 or 28, she was a single mom with three little kids. Wow. And 27. We, I didn't know yeah. she was 27. Yeah. I mean, God. imagine that. No, yeah. She rented this apartment mm-hmm. in this place called Tree Loft. And the guy, it was the 70s, and the guy. Are you in Minnesota? Minnesota, okay. yeah. And the guy who had lived in the apartment before us um, had this big round table that would probably that seated let me I, I guess I remember this now because this was my kitchen table for the rest of my life it, it was a it seated like eight people around. oh wow and it was just this wooden kind of table that had been like shellacked or mm-hmm. something but its legs were only like maybe 18 inches high so it was in the middle of this apartment in the middle of this living room it just had this little studio kitchen in this living room and it pretty much took up the living room and so my mom said <laughs> we don't have a kitchen table. Do you want to leave that table here? And she bought it from him for 10 bucks. And it became our kitchen table. Like I said, for and the rest of the- 18 inches off It's 18 inches. So we Did sat on the oh ground gosh, and she yeah. was like, this is what's great is we don't have to get chairs now. And yeah, you know, yeah. it was the seventies. Like the seventies was such a time where you're like, yeah, maybe the, maybe the table, the family dining room table is like, you have to sit down. And it seemed really festive, you know, totally. and fun. And then it's also like a stage. You could maybe stand on it. You absolutely. You could perform on it. Absolutely. And, um, Years later, when my mother met my stepfather, who was a carpenter, like he took off those little legs and put it and made it a oh, normal that's table. So height. It's still, it's actually still in the house where I grew up in northern Minnesota. But you know, so I think of that. Yeah. Like I think yeah. of the family community space. Yes. And then all through my 20s, when I had roommates or lived in sometimes cooperative houses or where many people lived. Yeah dinner wasn't necessarily planned but like we would all be in the kitchen at the same time and you'd end up like eating together and then now of course in my own life now that I have kids I have a daughter who's 17 and a son who's 18 it's like family dinner you know we'll t- I'll text the family chain yes mandatory family dinner yes we do that 
as many nights a week as we can manage. It's the best. It is like it's like the, the it's the constant. Mm-hmm. It's like the thing that brings it's a magnet that can bring like a family, a friend, or anyone you're living with back together. Yeah. It's not it's not the same for breakfast or lunch, but it is that like the habit of it that is the ritual and that feels so good. So. Yeah, I agree. Well, you've had an amazing debut of your show, Tiny Beautiful Things. And, you know, I think to start, you obviously had a quite literally an epic journey in Wilds. And I was thinking about it, and it feels like in so many ways, Tiny Beautiful Things has been its own kind of like rite of passage and epic journey because it started, you know, as this anonymous advice poem, right? Then to the yeah. very world-famous advice poem, then to a best-selling book, and now to a TV show, which is truly amazing. Uh, and so I'm curious, just at the beginning, like, where were you in life when you started writing as Sugar? Yeah, in a really different place. I mean, at the beginning, we never know. We, we, we like to think we know <laughs> where the path is going to lead us, right? But, but we're... Even if we think we know, we're wrong about that. And of course, when I decided to write the Dear Sugar column, I had no idea that all of this would happen. So let me take you back. It was February of 2010 when I got an email from my friend Steve Allman. At the time, he was just an acquaintance of mine. And he said, Cheryl, I'm writing this anonymous advice column called Dear Sugar for this website called The Rumpus. And he said, I know you read it because you wrote me a fan letter and your letter is the only fan letter I've received. And I thought he was being hyperbolic, but later when we did become friends, he's like, no, literally. Oh, you wrote a fan letter? I I did. What did she say? I said, dear Sugar, I don't know who you are, but I really think you're a fantastic writer and I wish you'd write the column more often. Meanwhile, we were acquainted and really, I didn't know it was him writing the column. (laughs) It was revealed. And he, well, it was only revealed when he emailed me. He said, Cheryl, it's, it's me. Steve. I write the column. And I was like, you? <laughs> and he said, when I got your email, I realized you're sugar. Like, you're the real sugar. And it was because he had read my first novel, Torch. He'd read some of my essays. Wow. And he said, I really think this is for you. And he said, and, and anyway, even if you don't want to do it, the column will just end because I don't want to do it either because it pays absolutely nothing. Zero. <laughs> Not hyperbolically zero. <laughs> literally zero. Nobody really reads it, except you. Changes And that. nobody even writes to me for advice. And at that time in my life, I had just finished writing the first full draft of Wild. Oh, you had? Yeah, like literally wow. the week before. God, so I had sent it off to my editor. Mm-hmm. So I, was, I had this little bit of downtime. And so I thought, immediately when he asked the question, I thought two things. One, yes, I want to do it. You know, I you knew felt, it right away. Well, I felt that spark of life. Yes. Oh, I know and exactly. You know when something just sparks you? It calls you. And even my husband said when I talked about it, my husband Brian said, Cheryl, you just, you're like excited by this. You, you don't trust that. Yeah. And of course, that's advice I give as sugar all the time. Yeah. But then there's the reasonable mind, which is I can't work for free. Mm-hmm. I was absolutely broke at the time. Mm-hmm. My husband's a documentary filmmaker. We had two little kids. We still have two. Now we have two big kids. <laughs> two big kids. <laughs> and we really didn't have any money. We had both had student loan debt. I mean, we were really in a bad place financially. And so I, I, it didn't make sense to say yes to working for free. It also didn't make sense because I was, you know, who am I to give advice, right? I wasn't a psychologist or a therapist and... I had never even gone through therapy at that point in my life. So 
But I set those feelings aside and I said yes. And that's how it began. Do you remember your first question? Yes, of course I do. <laughs> what was the first well, question? because what happened, as Steve said, like nobody was really writing to him. So he, when, he, when I took over the column, he gave me four letters. And I was like, okay. And so the very first letter I answered in Tiny Beautiful Things, the title of the column is called The Known Unknowns. And it's from this, this man who signs his name Gump. And he's essentially saying to me, I broke up with my fiance and ended up having like a two week fling with her best friend. And then the best friend, you know, like it's this whole complicated love triangle, right? But the last line of that first column is you are loved. And yet, and yet you are loved are the last lines of that column. And what is beautiful and, and moving to me when I go back and read that column is that's what that's what the column is about. And it's right there in the very first one I wrote. It really is about me saying to everyone and anyone, to any person who feels alone or lost or sad or confused, that even in spite of all the stuff, right, all the mistakes we make, yeah. you're loved. And so, it's yeah, it so was, that was my first poem. And it's also, I mean, as a reader and a uh, owner of two Tiny Beautiful Thing copies, well, first of all, anyone who's having dinner with us tonight, virtually, if you don't have a copy, I can't recommend it enough because I think it's like the perfect manual almost to have next to your bed because it's, you can kind of interact with it in the same way you would poetry and that every time you come back to it, you get something completely different depending on where you are in life. One thing I've noticed is that you do, oh, we have some food. Oh Yum. my goodness. Oh, there's oh, something delicious. that looks like it's very beautiful. Oh, here we go. Oh my gosh, it's beautiful. And this is your embered buttermilk bread. Oh. oh my gosh. Okay, wait, we want to do this right. Are these the pickles? Yes, so that's after the dinner. Oh. You want to spread the, the oh. tuna onto the bread. Oh. oh my goodness. So we make a very fancy tuna sandwich. One thing I've noticed as a reader of yours is that you do such a beautiful job offering parts of your own story and your own past as a way to, I think, empathize maybe with the reader, or the person asking the question, but also you're kind of like leveling with them in some way. And I'm curious, for me, it's always easier for me to share parts of my past than my present because I'm still figuring out how the heck I feel or what I think about the state yeah, of things. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm curious if it's been for you ever difficult to share also your present. And has that made like certain questions in the book or in your monthly column harder to answer than others? Yes, yes. Nobody's ever asked me that and it's so perceptive. So thank you. And first, I do want to say, I'm so glad you got that, that the reason I'm telling stories from my own life in the Dear Sugar column is to empathize. It's, it's certainly not to say, well, oh, listen, kid, you think you've got a bad listen to this problem. You know, yes, I'm not yes, trying yes. To, to do that, compare stories, but, but I honestly, sincerely, genuinely believe that story has the power to heal us. Yes. That it really, when I think about the times in my life when I've been confused or sad or alone or just feeling empty and lost, I turn to literature. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. books, books are my religion. Mm -hmm. That is where I find the sacred ground in so many ways that we share with all, all the living things, not just humanity, all the living things. Yeah. And you can read about somebody's broken heart or jealousy or fill in the blank grief. 
200 years ago. And, you, you know, some writer who wrote about that 200 years ago, and you can see yourself in it. You can see yourself in it across every divide. That is exactly the reason also for this podcast is this exact thing, which I'm like, it is that recognition that as different as we all are, we're also like so similar and that we're all kind of experiencing and, and, so much. and navigating and struggling with so many of the same things. And I feel like that is, you're right. It could be 200 years ago it could be today, but there's yeah. something that makes you feel a little less lonely. Absolutely. And to your question about, is it easier for me to write about my past and yeah. past experiences? Absolutely. Part of that for me is what you said, Sometimes the experience that we're having now or, or in recent past is not as processed. Right, exactly. You know, so you're like, I don't know if what I say about it would be true or meaningful or helpful to anyone else. Right. But also what I've really bumped up against lately. So recently I wrote um, a Dear Sugar column about how last summer I was like, you know, I need to drink less alcohol as we're still you're having a glass of wine. <laughs> but, you know, and, and I... I do drink a lot less alcohol. Like, yeah. I drink it occasionally. Yeah. So I could write about that. I could say, like, hey, this is something that happened last summer, and then over these last months, I've shifted this thing in my life. And that doesn't at all feel unprocessed. That feels like, oh, I can talk about it while it's yeah. in process. It's slightly more tactical, too. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a more, like, okay, yeah. habit. Like, let's break this habit. But then some of the deeper stuff, like, for example, parenting teenagers, which right. I'm doing right You're now. in the thick of it. Yeah, and so to... You know, I just feel like, okay, universe, I'm on my knees, you know? <laughs> and so, like, I don't know, like, I can commiserate with you and I can share what I have learned. But, right. you know, I think in 10 years, I'm going to be able to write about this era of my life mm. with so much more intelligence and complexity. Mm -hmm. And even, like, wild. Mm -hmm. People always say, well, why did you wait a decade to write wild? Right. Because I wrote about that hike. But I'm like, no, I actually, I didn't wait. I didn't wait. I wrote it exactly when it was time to write it. And that is when I had when something they, to say about it that transcended just, yes. I took a really interesting trip, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I hiked 1,000 miles. <laughs> I mean, and that would have been a great dinner conversation. Right. Okay. And I was. I told lots of people about the hike. But to make art into literature, very often, not always, but very often, we need some time to process it. In space. Yeah. Also, for the record, I'm really sorry if I smoke you out of the room with this, this spice of this <laughs> Is it spicy? It's spicy? Oh wait, did you? Okay, are we? I'm gonna, to the point where like I'm gonna try it. That's why we have the palate cleanser. <laughs> oh my gosh, it takes a minute to hit. Are you a spice? No, you're. <laughs> I'm gonna see what it's like unadulterated. <laughs> well, also, I've got to pace myself because it's, in addition, you guys are getting cheesy bread. <laughs> oh my god, when it's pure like that, it's really strong. But what does it remind us of? You know, it, it reminds sure. me of like a like a chorizo. Is it like yeah, chorizo? Yeah, right. It has some, something smoky in it. It it's has quite, a bite. It does have a bite. Okay, so one question I'm so curious is, as Cheryl today, okay, you could ask Sugar for a piece of advice. Do you know what that would be? Oh, gosh. I have so many problems, Alexa. <laughs> I mean, so I have to say, if I could spend a week with Sugar. <laughs> There's so many things. I think that, um, for me, one of the struggles in my life right now, I am 54 and so much in the prime of my professional life. Like, That's I have so, so much opportunity. Like, I have so many things to do and make and write and be part of. And that excites me like crazy. I have 
I have always been an absolute worker bee. Like, I mean, even back, like, when I was working at the Dairy Queen as a teenager, you know, I was always like, work, 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 work. And now I get to do that kind of thing with projects that absolutely interest and excite me. And yet, I also very often feel stressed out and overwhelmed and, like, Mm. I have too many things. Mm. So, like, how to honor the, the excitement of the work I'm doing. At the moment. By also saying no to some of it. Mm. Like, that mm. spark I just told you about, like, when I was asked to be sugar. Yes. I get that spark a lot about a lot of stuff. And then I'm depleted because yeah. I've said yes to too many things. Yeah. yeah. And what so, do you do for yourself when you're depleted? Well, I do try. I do try. Well, first of all, I go on a walk every day. That's you really do. important. I, and, and, yeah, obviously walking, mm-hmm. it sounds like it's, oh, you're exerting yourself, but it's actually so relaxing. No, it's, it's, my, it's my meditation, It's my too. meditation, too. It's the only way I know how to, like, just... Me, too. Mm-hmm. And, and also, walking is part of my work life, my creative life, because so often I will come to the best idea yes. in I the walking seen. state. It's like a... And I think you're the same because it's the human brain. Mm-hmm. That's what happens to our brain, mm-hmm. is it has a little room... To relax, right, and, distance, and open up to something new. What's that? No. So you're saying it's your sugar. So like, please help me with how me. to like find some kind of just let go and say like, okay, Cheryl, you need to honor your need to have some balance in your life and say yeah. no to some of the things, even though they sound interesting and fun and cool. Yeah, a really real problem because then also or a really it real is. thing. Because at some point you run up against like the flame not even being there, not because you're not yeah. excited, but because you just don't have the capacity to be excited totally. anymore. Totally. Yeah. Well, that's a good one. You're not eating enough of the spicy tuna. <laughs> you're really. I'm a man. <laughs> one of my favorite things that I've discovered about you is that you chose the name Straight. That's right. And it's powerful for so many wonderful reasons but obviously you as like a magician and master of words I imagine it's particularly special and so I'd love to know sort of what led you to this decision and how did you choose yes when I was in my 20s I got married and divorced got married scandalously young how young were you (laughs) oh I was so young I mean it's so it's one of those parts of my life where I think oh my gosh like what was I thinking well, and I know exactly what I was thinking. I was, you know, <laughs> you were mad, love. I was madly in love. Was That's like, all you, know, you need to think. <laughs> yeah. And, he, and my ex-husband was wonderful. So yeah. no regrets, but it just, I was too young. So yeah. I literally got married when I was 19. 19. Did it was choose? a month before my 20th birthday. Mm-hmm. And I mean, now I can see everything so clearly, like what we were thinking. And he was, mm-hmm. he had just turned 22 when we got married. So we were, you know, almost 20 and 22. You're in college when we, yeah, 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 in college. Mm-hmm. And when I got divorced, when we got divorced about five years later, we were doing a do-it-yourself divorce. So you just get this form from the state of Minnesota, and it has all these questions, you know. It, you I know, didn't know that you get to do a DIY. Yeah, <laughs> if you don't have kids, yeah, and like we literally right, had no, right, right. no yeah. possessions. And yeah, we did it together. Wow. And then one line on the form was, what will your names be after the divorce? And you just write in the name. You could write oh, wow. in Mickey Mouse. I could be Mickey Mouse. <laughs> <laughs> That's like that episode of Friends when Phoebe changes her name. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, yeah, she becomes exactly. Princess Consuela Banana Hammock, and it's yes. my favorite episode. Yes, yes, yes. It's like she's your power. I could be Princess Consuela Banana Hammock. <laughs> exactly. I could be Santa Claus. Exactly. I could be 
the Easter Bunny. I could be whatever. Anyway, so I was like, okay, I need. I don't want to go back to being Cheryl Nyland because that was me as a kid, mm. and it's also my father's name, mm-hmm. you know. And of course, by then my mom was dead. I was an orphan, and I knew that words meant so much to me that I was going to need to like make my own family. I was going to need to make my own heritage. I was going to need to make my own way in the world. And I thought for a long time about different words that could be that word for me. And I came upon strayed and I loved the definition of it. I wrote, I wrote about the definition in my book, Wild, Mm -hmm. about how it is somebody who Mm -hmm. is motherless and fatherless, like I was. It's somebody who forges their own path, somebody Mm -hmm. who has their wits about them and and Mm -hmm. can make their way in the world, Mm -hmm. somebody who blazes a trail off the beaten path, who strays. And not in a negative way, but but in the way that I was frankly forced to by the circumstances of my life. And what's interesting now, I've been Cheryl Strayed longer than I was anything, so it really is my name. But but it's also revealed to me a very strong misapprehension or bias in our culture because people will say things to me like, "Well, straight isn't your real name." And what's funny real to me, name. yeah, and what's mm. funny to me about that is, if I had become Cheryl Strait because I married somebody, right. you know, Jim Strait or something, yes. they would that's never true. say to me, "That's not your real name." So true. And so it's somehow so the name gets validated by it being by attached not. to. Yeah, marriage or something. But it's like, no, it, it is my real name. It's actually a name <laughs> that I happen to choose, yes. and it's as real as any name has ever been. Yeah. It really does bring up a lot of questions about heritage and the nuance. It of does. That. Even the nuance of legacy, you know, and is one of your children's middle name? We straight? want some pickles. Yeah. Uh oh. Wow. What is <laughs> it's, it's actually exhilarating. It's a good pickle. What is going through your mind when you're standing on set? I can imagine it's like a pretty intense mix of emotion as your life is being like portrayed and the stories are told about like some very beautiful and intense moments you've gone through for the world to consume and consider. Yeah, it's it's surreal. What is a conversation like in the writer's room? Does someone throw an idea out for the way that a a scene should sort of unfold and then everybody kind of chimes in? Yeah, it's exactly that. It's like, okay, well, what about... So, for example, Claire is our sugar, Mm -hmm. played by Catherine Hodge. She's amazing. amazing. Oh, my gosh. Um, I cried in the first episode, like, six times. Oh, good. (laughs) We love to make people cry. Oh, but so flashbacks. Stuff like, what does her husband do for a living? Okay? And... Then we just talk about it. Oh, should he be a musician? Should he be a photographer? Should he be a teacher? Should he be like any number mm-hmm. of things? And people make pitches. This was the funny thing. I was like, okay, a big part of becoming a TV writer is just learning the lingo. Nobody right. has an idea in the writer's room. It's a pitch. Let oh, me make this oh. pitch. You know, just I love that. Like <laughs> it has its own language. You feel like you're joining a club when you learn like the lexicon. Yeah, exactly. And then we would hash it out, or we'd go, oh, I, you know, somebody would say. Oh, she could do this, and it would be. We'd all think like that's so funny, and then somebody would say, "Oh, or how about this?" and just twist it a little, and then make it funnier. And then that's really fun. That's how it goes. Pretty early on, I said, you know, I feel pretty passionate that this character uh, that we're creating is not me now. It's 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 not even me when I began to write in the sugar mm. column. That it like she has to share my past. The, the formative experiences of my youth are also her formative experiences. She has a mother who died young of cancer, okay. like I yeah. I do. 
she has an abusive father from whom she's long estranged, like I do and did, he's dead now. And she grew up poor and working class in a rural environment. She got married and divorced young. So those four things, I said, let's let's have those be in her past. And part of it was also, not just that those are the things that shaped and formed me and her, but also in so much of the advice I give, it I draw up. on those stories. Yeah, you're right. So yeah, yeah. that has to make sense, right? Right. And so we got to have this, this alternate universe. So when we see the scenes in flashback, played by Sarah Pigeon. They're amazing, those flashbacks. I know. Too. And Merritt Weaver, who plays Frankie, who's really my mom. Bobby. So those scenes, almost all of them are really from my life. Like, really, yeah. really from my life. The scene when your mother is announcing you for graduation... You and your brother come out, or the actors playing the two of you is like, I don't know, the acting is so amazing. It made it feel so real and so powerful and so emotional without saying so much. And I just, I love the flashbacks. And they're intense. Thank you. And it was just really moving. And it's like a crazy kind of therapy. The reenactment. therapy? To, to I, don't know. I don't know if it's therapy. I guess it feels like I said earlier. It feels, it feels moving to me. Because it honors the life I had, and it also tells other people who are in that kind of agony, and I know there are a lot of other people, not my particular agony, but basically they relate, and it gives them some comfort. I mean, just that simple thing of seeing somebody else's story that resonates with your own is so powerful. Wow, gorgeous. Uh Uh-oh, is that the cheesy (laughs) Yum. Thank you. Anchovy butter, yum. Cheesy bread is beautiful. This is a serious knife. I mean, this is like... This is what we needed for the on time. I mean, look (laughs) at this knife. (laughs) You're an advice giver, you're a mother, you're a wife. You're also a really brilliantly talented writer. And I guess I would love to know just why you write or why you love to write. Mm, That's such a great question. And it, it feels really impossible to answer. And here's why. Mm-hmm. Is that writing is so much a part of me that it's like asking me, you know, why my sense of humor is the way it is. Yeah. Or why my, why my personality is what it is. Because it's actually part of me. Like, I can't not be you a writer. Not. It's just like part of my whole identity. And, and, not, and not the identity I project to the world but the way that I live in the world inside my own body and mind. I, I remember, honestly, I had my first epiphany when I was like six. Six? Yes. So my family was not um, religious. We didn't go to church or anything. But one night I spent the night with a friend and her family did attend church. Mm-hmm. So like I spent like a Saturday night. Her name was Colleen. And um, <laughs> she, in the morning it was like, oh, we go to church. We go to the Lutheran church down the street. So. Colleen and I were young enough that we were put in, maybe I was seven, six mm-hmm. or seven. The Sunday school teacher handed out this book that I still have, this little chapbook, that's just this water, simple watercolor pictures of nature, butterflies and flowers and trees and, and birds. And, and then on each page were these little poems, just very kind of haiku-like, very short lyrical poems about the wonders of nature. And, of course, it was kind of God's grace in nature kind of stuff. And I had just learned how to read. And I remember 
reading those words and feeling pierced with beauty and astonishment. I couldn't believe that somebody could capture in, in written language mm. that ineffable, that, that's, that something that I knew was true, that I'd experienced was true, um, but had never heard anyone say. And um, yeah. I just remember just thinking, this was so magnificent. I mean, it's so amazing that your six-year-old brain also recognized that. Yeah. And that's when you know it's part of you. And it's like yeah. when people have, I think that spark that we talked about earlier, it's like you, the answer is almost like you can't not. Like, I can't not do it. Yeah. And it's like, a, it's like you're called to it as much as it's calling you. And it's like a force. Absolutely. Force. That's, that's what it is. And so then I, I wasn't like, now I'm going to be a writer because... I didn't even know we that six. somebody like me could be a writer, but I started writing. You did? Yeah, and I and I would write, yeah, I would just write stories, you know, it was just like my wow. entertainment. And then even in my teenage years, again, like I wasn't, I didn't grow up in, in an educated community. I didn't grow up in any literary orbits that, like I sort of thought like writers are like dead people, dead men, you know? Yeah. Um, but I do remember I was always a feminist and as a teenager, I subscribed to Ms. Magazine. And you have to remember, all this was before the internet. So it wasn't yeah. like I had this like portal to all this information. Yeah. What I had is like once a month, this cool magazine that talked about feminism yeah. would come to my mailbox. And so I would read the whole thing. And when I was a teenager, they, I remember they did a story on Joyce Carol Oates. And I was so intrigued because I was like, okay, wait a minute. There is a woman living in New Jersey right now, writing novels. And they, the pictures of her with their big glasses mm. and everything. And I was just like, I want to be like her. And yet my family didn't have any money. And I knew that like, I needed to get a job. So when I went to college, I majored in journalism because I was like, that is the way you write and make money. Yep. So I majored in journalism that first year. And then it was like, I liked it, but it was like interest adjacent, you know? Mm-hmm. It was the practical, practical interest. And then I took a class when I was 20 from the poet Michael Dennis Brown at the University of Minnesota. It was an introduction to poetry writing class. And it absolutely, completely blew my mind and changed my life because it was there that I just thought, you know what? I'm going to do this. And I know the chances are, like, I won't ever make any money from mm. it. I won't ever get any recognition. I won't ever, but this is who I am and what I want to do. And I never look back from there. And I think of, of all the like threads of my life that have been broken or all the courses of my life that have been altered, the one that has never, ever, ever changed. And that I do think is like unbreakable in me until the day I die is that I'll be a writer. Wow. You're just so beautiful. <laughs> and like incredibly well said. And it is that calling. It's a magnetic force. It's part of you. It's it is impossible to describe. Now, that doesn't mean that it's easy. I was going to ask you, that's actually no. my next question. What's the hardest part? Except for... The hardest <gasps> part is writing. Wow. Okay, there is a this lot bounty of, of food. Oh, wait wow. a minute. Brussels sprouts was a good one. What are all these yummy things? How exciting is this? And by the way, these Brussels sprouts look so amazing. And every time I try to make them at home... I know. They never come out like this. The chefs want to also wow. give you a complimentary order of our diverse scallops. <gasps> oh, Ooh. thank you. Oh, I love scallops. This is a beautiful dish. It has galangal, a little macro lime. Yum. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, wow. this all looks so fabulous. This is so exciting. Please enjoy. Look at our little scallops. Wow. Awesome. 
Oh my this god. Is so mm. good. Look at this beautiful shell that they've served. I know. Scallop in. It feels like a real delicacy. Mm. How is it? Mm. Okay. It's so good. Scallops are like kind of divisive because of their texture. I, I love, to love them. them. Me too. There's well, some ginger. Well, cooked right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But what is this curry? Mm. Do you taste some? Is like, it curry? I think so. Is yeah. What is it? It's like a coconut curry. It's really, really is good. Is it? Wow, it's incredibly good. I think that's my favorite thing so far. I do. Mm. See, that's it. They know what we should have ordered. They're like, they didn't you order the scallop. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Have you ever so worked in a restaurant? I've never worked in a restaurant. I've worked a lot of retail, so it feels mm -hmm. like adjacent, but I've never worked in a restaurant. Have you worked in a restaurant? Yes, yes. I worked in many, many restaurants. That's how I supported my writing for, you know, into my 30s. And that's how I learned a lot about food and wine, too. You know, to work at, like, fancy restaurants where people are, you know, thank you. So I was, I, you got interrupted, but what, what was, was the I hardest saying? part? Oh, you know, I think writing is incredibly hard. The hardest part of my job is writing. Is, is it to sit down and do it? Of course it's writing, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I find it very, very hard to get started. And then once I do, I'm fine. And I always think like, what? And, and, and that's part of the process. Like mm -hmm. one of the things I've realized is like to actually welcome that to the table, say, oh, I'm feeling like a terrible amount of resistance and avoidance and dread and anxiety. Mm. And um, I'm asking myself why I couldn't have done something, a different kind of work. I literally get mad at myself. <laughs> I'm like, why? There are all these totally like fine jobs that you just go I know this feeling and you're there and yes. you just do your thing and then you go home mm -hmm. and you have a life. And why yes. why did I choose this insane existence? And mm -hmm. and yet what I've learned is to say, Welcome to the table. That feeling is actually part of my ability to succeed. Oh, like it, it's actually part of the process. Like I used to try to maybe about five years ago. I, I thought, should I, should I get rid of this? Like, should I try to go to therapy specifically about this? About this writer's block. About procrastination. Yeah. Yeah, it's not so much block as it is avoidance. Yes, Because yes. I eventually always do it. Yeah. But it's like, it's I have to go through all kinds of epic, terrible mm -hmm. things to get there. And then I was like, well, maybe I should go talk to somebody about this. Yeah. And like be hypnotized or drugged or whatever. This whatever. is actually the question I would ask Sugar myself. So I'm really curious yeah. what your answer is. So, instead of doing that, I thought, okay, so what would that look like? You know, yeah. what would it look like if I didn't feel anxious and I didn't feel a sense of fear and dread? Yeah. And what I did when I sat down to write is I just felt like ease and comfort and joy and, and, and like, here we go. I'm going to start typing. Like, I realized that, like, <laughs> it it just, that doesn't feel, how do I, what's the word for it? It doesn't. It doesn't feel like that that's what's going to contribute to the deep, deep, important thing I'm trying to do when I write. Because it's not natural. It's not what you're feeling in the moment. Yeah. So it's not well, the avenue to get there. And it's also like, it's also just like a very limited side of the human experience. Like, yeah. You know, if you imagine, like, I, I kind of imagine like a table. Mm -hmm. Okay. So like mm -hmm. when I sit down to write, there is dread and fear and anxiety and the desire to communicate and the desire for to um, find my own enlightenment 
and joy and pleasure. It's like all they're, of they're it. They're sitting with They're you. all there. And, if, and to, to sort of therapy away, yeah. my anxiety is to say like, I'm going to write with only half the table. Right. You know? And I don't want to write with only half the table. I want, I want to write with like all of my fucking like craziness. Exactly. And my, and my anxiety and my fear and, and my courage and my delight and my, you know, all of like, I want it all to be there. That is so, so powerful. The change that you need to make is not to say, I want writing to be easy and not scary. It's to say, I want to get stronger and braver and develop that muscle that allows me to bear my fear and my anxiety and push through anyway. I mean, the thing on the Pacific Crest Trail, like my feet hurt so bad. And what I had to learn is how to keep walking even when it hurt. And that's the same thing we need to learn as writers, you know? Yeah. So that's, that's to me the answer. It's not to say like, let's create a path that doesn't hurt. Or it's not let's, scary. Let's, let's walk the path on which we are so strong, we do it even when it does hurt. It's so incredibly powerful. I'm just thinking of this now. You were standing at the beginning of about to hike a uh-huh. thousand miles. Uh-huh. Do you have like any expectation for it? Or like what it could or should be? Oh, or yeah. like, this idea that this was going to be the epic journey of your life and that it was going to become kind of well, no, I had no idea it would become... Not like a movie, but that like it would be so Like what I would so write about it and stuff. But uh, no, I, yeah, that's why I took the hike. I mean, I took the hike because I knew I just needed knew to change, change my life. And I had that, like, Rilke, I mean, one of my favorite poems by Rilke, it culminates in the line, you know, you must change your life. And I had to change my life. And I, so I went on that journey because I was like, I have gotten on the wrong path and I need to get back on the right path. And so I was seeking a kind of healing mm-hmm. and a kind of change. But it looked different to me before I went on the trail than when I got there. So I imagined a kind of, you know, kind of weeping on sunsets, a kind of like, you know, with the violins playing on the background. And what I learned was that the healing journey I was going to get was much less in my mind and much more in my body. So mm. a lot of this stuff... In your body. A lot of this stuff actually ends up being the kind of advice I give as sugar. I learned on the Pacific Crest Trail yeah. that all the suffering that I had experienced inside my self before the hike um, was greatly lessened by the fact that I was then suffering physically. You know, like it actually hurt to hike. It actually hurt to carry that really heavy backpack and to be in the heat and the cold and to keep walking when I had blisters or when my muscles ache. And I couldn't focus on what how my heart was hurting. I could only feel what my body was doing. It was in agony. And yet, what I had to do, the only way to hike a trail is to keep going. Yeah. And so pretty quickly I learned the lesson that my soul needed to learn was being lived out in my body. My body was teaching me what my soul needed to know. Mm. And it was that you can do this and you can go on and it does hurt. And that's part of life. And you're strong enough to bear it. You know, that that heavy backpack that I literally could not lift on day one. And yet did lift. You know, it's like, that's what wild is about. It's like how you bear the unbearable. And that's and that's why I didn't write it right away, because it took me a decade 
to learn what I learned on the trail, to learn it consciously, to say like, oh, that is the meaning of that story to me. Yeah. And then to try to write toward that. Not that I was yeah. trying to sort of convey a message. I don't believe in conveying messages in yeah. your work. But I was going to tell a story about me learning that. I was so shocked to read that you didn't sit down or intend for it to be an inspirational book, no. like you said. I had, well, not only that. Like, even after I wrote it, I didn't think, like, boy, people are going to be inspired and by like, this. And, like, then soon after you're a motivational speaker. <laughs> I know. I know. I was like, well, like, even that, like, Dear Sugar being, like, 10 beautiful mm-hmm. things being classified in the self-help section. I'm like, what? What? <laughs> and now, time for dessert. No good dinner ends without something sweet. Tonight, Cheryl and I are splitting the Angler's signature soft-serve sundae, finished with a magic shell topping, which really brought me back to my childhood. Okay, so the defined dessert portion. Okay, this is like speed round. I know, I love this. <laughs> so we're going to ask speed round questions. Well, do you want any more? Uh, no, I want no more food. So my last fun questions for you. If you could have dinner oh. with anyone, who would you have dinner with? You could fill a table. Maybe we could like have I mean, multiple. There would be so many people. The, the first, I know, this, this game is very hard. The person who came to mind when you were first asking me, mm-hmm. so I'll just tell you yep. is Michelle Obama oh yes you know I, mean, I just think she's the one. coolest person yeah, absolutely and I so admire just her strength and her grace and her intelligence I mean I admire everything about her I think mm-hmm. she's an amazing person and I think it would be wonderful oh here's our delicious dessert oh yum Thank Dinner you. was so was good. So and good. Please thank the chef for those scallops. They we were they were like scallops. they ended up being like we loved mess. everything. You but knew. we the scallops were our scallops favorite thing. Yanni knew. Yeah. 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 Here. Thank, thank you, you so much. You're so excited. Oh my god. Oh my goodness. Wow. Oh. Oh my god. I love it. I Ember. love the wow. No. Look at the presentation. Oh. Like a Dairy Queen magic shell. I, this brings me back to my days as a Dairy Queen employee as a teenager. Thank you. Okay, this is like this is gorgeous. It's so pretty. I think you have to take the first bite. Okay, okay. Mm. Oh, I wonder what flavor it is. God, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It does kind of look like a fancy Dairy Queen. So. I'm gonna eat like a lot of this. This is so good. Thank you. I, I love this. With me tonight. Thank you. It's really wonderful to talk to you. And so much fun. What a cool podcast. Thank you. I mean, I've done a lot of podcasts, but nobody's ever fed me. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for dinner tonight. This is a new show, and this was our very first episode. So you all joining really means the world to me. If you enjoyed this dinner, you can invite your friends to the next. You can do this by sending a link to this episode to your favorite people to eat dinner with too. Your support really helps get the word out and our dinner table is big enough for everyone. Over Dinner Tonight will drop on your podcast feed every Tuesday at dinner time. Follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We're also on Instagram, so please follow along. You can find fun photos, food, behind-the-scenes sneak peeks, and more information on what's coming next. Over Dinner Tonight is produced in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Madison Lesby, Daniel Roth, Whitney Shepard, and Morgan Foose. 
Our production team in Los Angeles is Chris Jacobs, Selena Shea Reynolds, and Kate Lavo. See you next week. Bye.